Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. We are slowly but surely making our way through Galatians as, we, as Paul is writing to a church that has added to the gospel and thus in danger of missing out on the gospel. And last week we saw at the beginning of Galatians 3 that if they add to the gospel, severe consequences would happen, such as missing out on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and missing out on being a part of Abraham's family tree and family line and being cursed theologically and psychologically. There was a number of things. And today, Paul is going to add to his argument, really looking at the Old Testament and how that plays into effect and what is the role of the Old Testament law. Because if people are really saved by faith and justified by faith and not works, then why did God give this massive Old Testament law in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Well, that's what Paul's going to talk about today. So if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to read verses 15 to 25. And just a fair warning, today's going to take a little more intellectual firepower as we look at, uh, hopefully every Sunday takes some of that, but it'll take a little more today because we're going to be talking about how the covenant to Abraham relates to the covenant of Moses. It doesn't seem like a very practical question, but this is what Paul addresses. And it actually is, if you begin to understand it, it's incredibly practical. So let me start reading at verse 15. It says, brothers and sisters... Let me take an example from everyday life. And by the way, I love how Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters. Last week he called them foolish. You are foolish for abandoning the gospel. But this week he's calling them brothers and sisters because he loves them even though they've abandoned the gospel. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, that's the Mosaic law, introduced 430 years later after the Abrahamic promise, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And what does Paul say? Let's say it together. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture, or the law, has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Father, as I unpack your word today, I pray that you would make my words incredibly clear. And even more so, I pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts to see with our spiritual eyes your beauty, your glory, your plan, and your majesty, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever tried to make a serious attempt to read the Bible, that is awesome. But if you've ever done so, you know that it's also confusing. How many people at some level find the Bible confusing when you read it? Yes, join the club. And chances are, if you started reading a Bible plan, perhaps you start in Genesis and you do well maybe in Genesis, maybe even in Exodus. The first 20 chapters are incredibly interesting because it's God rescuing them from Egypt and sending the 10 plagues and parting the Red Sea and all those exciting things. But then you get to Exodus 20 and beyond, and it is the Ten Commandments, it is law, it is the tabernacle. You get to the book of Leviticus, and it is animals and sacrifices and blood and guts, and even things like skin diseases and bodily secretions. I mean, crazy stuff that this Mosaic law talks about. And then you get to Deuteronomy, and that is a, literally a second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. Deuteros means second and namas means law. So that is a second giving of the law that Moses reiterates for them and for us. It is a massive chunk of scripture. And yet scripture says we are saved by faith and not by law. So how do we put that together? Why would God give such a massive law for us to read, for them to know and for them to understand and for us to try to make sense of? How does the law fit into the promise to Abraham? How does it fit into the fact that we are saved by grace through faith? Because the average person I talk to that reads the Bible, I think, if they've ever read most of the Bible, they say, well, God, in the Old Testament, he seemed to save people by works. But then you get to the New Testament, and God seems to save people by grace through faith in the cross. But is that really the case? Today, we're going to talk about all these issues We're going to try to unpack them. And I always pray that when I start to get into some of these heady things, that even if I'm wrong, I'm clearly wrong. I just pray for clarity. (laughs) So pray, pray for that. And I think the Galatians, in many ways, we can't blame them in some ways for adding to the law. It was wrong. We can't blame them, excuse me, for adding to the gospel by bringing in the law, by trying to follow the Mosaic law, because these false teachers were coming in and saying, yes, you're saved by Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised to really be saved. You also have to follow the Mosaic law of the food laws and the clean laws and unclean laws to really be saved. In some ways, you can't blame them because these false teachers may have come in and said, yes, yes, Paul, I agree with you that salvation's by grace through faith. I agree with you that Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, and we saw this last week, that, that he was justified, even in the Old Testament, by faith. But then later, God gave the law. And do you know how many commands there are in the Old Testament law? Do you know how many? Over 600 commands. So yes, you're saved by faith, Paul, we're with you, but then you have to finish and continue by works. After all, God gave the law after the promise to Abraham. And so Paul comes back and says, no, 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 that's not true. Let me show you from the Bible why that doesn't make sense. So today we're going to look at one statement, two questions, and two images to help us understand the law. So one statement, two questions, and two images to help us understand what hopefully I can clearly present. So here's the statement, number one, the only statement. God's law to Moses and the Israelites came when? After the promise to Abraham, therefore, the law does not cancel or change the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham still stands. That's a lot in there. Let me, let's read that together. 
Here's the statement together. God's law to Moses and the Israelites came after the promise to Abraham. Therefore, the law does not cancel or change the promise. The promise still stands. So look at what Paul says in verse 15. And if you didn't get all that, that's okay. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So he's bringing up an everyday example. When you and I make a contract or a covenant with someone else, oftentimes you've got to get a lawyer involved and you draw up everything. And you can change it in our day and age, but it, it takes some effort. You've got to get your lawyer back together and change it again. But back in that day and age, in biblical times and in Greco-Roman times, when they made a covenant, when two people made a covenant, it was almost impossible to change. And Paul says, just like that, just when you get two human beings together to make a covenant or a contract or agreement together, once it's established, you can't change it. So it is in this case, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. So if you skip to verse 17, he brings this out. He says this, what I mean is this, the law, the law to Moses and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy introduced 430 years later. That's after the promise to Abraham. It does not set aside that covenant to Abraham previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham first and then the law came later, but that law doesn't change the promise. The promise still stands. And then he unpacks what that promise is in verse 16. If you go back a verse, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people or plural, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is, who's the person there? Christ. So Paul is using a very, very sophisticated argument from Scripture. He's going back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And he's talking about the original promise that God gave to Abraham. In fact, I put it up on screen in Genesis 12. This is after the Tower of Babel, if you know your Bible, where they tried to make a name for themselves and God humbled them. He came down and scattered them. Uh, but now God says, I'm going to make your name great, Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then it goes on to reiterate this in chapter 15 and chapter 17. And so Paul is saying that that original covenant to Abraham, the ultimate seed and offspring and descendant that that is talking about is what person? Did you catch it? Christ. So if you go back to, G to Galatians 3 now, to the next slide, the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed, not and to seeds, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The covenant is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the perfect person to fulfill it because he was a literal descendant of Abraham. He was Jewish. He lived the ultimate life of faith. He perfectly achieved on the cross what this blessing referred to. So let's skip to verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, our salvation depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So Paul is unpacking a lot of things here. He's saying you cannot bring the law in because it came later. The promise to Abraham was first. 
And ultimately, that promise applies to Jesus, who's the, the final descendant that that promise was talking about. And even by its very nature, if, if your inheritance depends on the law, that's very different than a promise. Because if somebody makes a promise to you, like unless there are stipulations, usually they, they're going to fulfill that promise regardless of what you do, hopefully. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on them. You receive that promise. You receive that grace. But if it depends on law, if somebody makes stipulations based on what you do, then it's based on your effort and your achievement. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham, not through law or through his effort, but through a promise. Why does all of this matter, really? <laughs> Why does Paul get into this? Well, he is concerned that they are adding to the gospel. Why would you put the law first? The law came after. God gave it to Abraham through a promise. If you try to inherit your salvation by your own efforts and by your own law, then it is not based on a promise. It is not based on grace. It is purely based on your effort. You are adding to the gospel. You know, the longer I live as a Christian and a pastor, how easy it is to add to the gospel. And we've talked about this in our series. How easy it is to add our own effort or law to trying to achieve our own salvation or our right status with God. I see this all the time, even among Christians, just like the Galatians were doing. We start by grace through faith, but, but then we get excited about something else and say, well, if you're really a Christian, then, then you have to be about making a difference in this world, which I agree you have to. But first it's gospel. And then we do that. That is not the primary identity of us. There's so many times I hear Christians get excited more about politics than they do about their own faith and identity in Christ. And we're coming up on an election season next year, just to warn you, we'll be hearing more about this. But if we put our politics before our Christianity for the gospel, what God has done through Christ, we are adding to the gospel. I hear people say, yes, you're saved by Jesus, but you better abstain from certain forms of entertainment as if that's what really saves you. And I'm all for living lives of holiness, don't get me wrong. But we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So Paul is bringing up a pretty complicated argument. He's saying historically, the law came after Abraham. So if you're going to put the law first, you're doing away with the original promise to Abraham. We are not saved by the law. We're saved by the promise. I want you to think with me for a second. This is where it gets deep, I think. You think of the covenant to Abraham, and you think of the covenant to Moses and the Israelites. Were they similar? Or were they different? Was Abraham saved one way and then the people of Israel and Moses saved a different way? Some of you are looking at me like this. <laughs> I actually think both covenants are very, very similar. Even though they're applied differently, one to Abraham and his family and ultimately to Christ and us and one to Moses and the Israelites. But both required grace from God. That's number one, the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. Both required grace. So think of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. He simply chose Abraham to be his man that he was going to work through. Did Abraham earn God's blessing? No. God simply chose him and said, I'm going to choose you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed, which ultimately meant Christ. 
But then even in the Mosaic covenant, which we often think about as works and law and 600 plus commands, look at what God spoke before he gave the 10 commandments. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Look at what I've done. I've chosen you. I've done this. I am a God of grace. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7 Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord says this through Moses, the Lord did not set his affection on you, Israelites, and choose you because you were more numerous, for you were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God did not choose the Israelites because they had done something, but it was purely out of his grace. So both the Abrahamic promise or covenant And the Mosaic Law Covenant, both required grace. In addition, number two, both require faith or trust and response to what God has done. This is most evident with Abraham. We saw this last week in Genesis 15, and it's quoted in Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So faith was required. But even in the Mosaic Covenant, faith is required because in Deuteronomy, it mentions this a lot. When Moses is preaching a second giving of the law, he tells them, in spite of this, you did not trust or believe or have faith in the Lord your God. Despite what God has done, you were required to have faith to be a part of the covenant. So both require grace, both require faith, and then thirdly, lastly, both require obedience or works that comes from faith. And we often, I know that's kind of small print, But we often think at the bottom with Moses that that covenant required works because there's 600 plus commands. But even with Abraham, God said, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, Isaac, when he went to sacrifice him, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So even Abraham, though he was saved by faith, it was not a faith that remained alone. It led to works. He wasn't saved by works, but his faith led to works. Just like in the covenant with Moses, God's gracious saving and salvation through the Exodus was to lead to good works. Here's how one theologian says this about the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant. He says, the law of Moses is fundamentally a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant applied to a new state in redemptive history. Let me say that again. The law is a restatement of the covenant to Abraham, but applied to a new state in God's plan of redemption. It does not do away with the Abrahamic covenant or change it. In both of these covenants, the only way to attain blessing from God is to trust him for his grace. And in both covenants, final blessing depends on a life of faith. Or to put it another way, in both covenants, the promise of God's blessing comes by grace through faith and it is not earned. But in both covenants, the faith which saves taps into God's power in such a way that obedience results. And this obedience is such a necessary extension of saving faith that in both covenants, obedience to God is a condition of final salvation. Not legalistic works of the law, but spirit-empowered obedience of faith. So let me see if you're tracking with me by giving you a quiz question. And you can actually turn to your neighbor and discuss this, okay? If you're tracking with me here, I think you'll be able to answer this question. So people in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, if we're tracking with Paul, how were they saved? 
Go ahead and turn to your neighbor for 10 seconds. Somebody just gave it away. But go ahead and turn to your... <laughs> you were always one of those A-plus students, weren't you, at the front of the class? Turn to your neighbor for 10 seconds and discuss how were Old Testament believers saved. Even though Jesus hadn't come, the cross hasn't happened, how were they saved? Go. Five seconds left. <laughs> it was fast. <laughs> All right, class. So what's the answer? They were saved by faith. You could even add by grace, by God's grace, through faith. And it wasn't just a general sense of belief in God that saved them because the book of James tells us that even the demons believe in God, but they're not saved, and they shudder. No, they were saved by faith. And even though Christ hadn't come, they were saved by faith in God's, you could say, promise. God's promise and God's provision. Say that with me. God's promise and God's provision. In Abraham's situation, he was saved by trusting in God who would provide a descendant, even though he and Sarah were barren, and provide the ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. He was saved by a personal trust and a personal God, even though Jesus hadn't come yet. And similarly with the Israelites, their situation was a little bit different than Abraham, of course, but they were saved by grace, by trusting in God's plan of deliverance in their life, how he led them out of slavery in Egypt, how they put the blood when God led them in the Passover and the angel of death passed over them. And they were saved by faith as they lived that out and engaged in the sacrificial system and the temple system. But that all was in response to faith in God's promise and God's provision. This leads me to say thanks that we are on this side of the cross, that it is much clearer that Jesus has come, but they were saved by faith. And so Paul is trying to give this really sophisticated argument that why would you put the law first? The promise came first. That is of first importance. It hasn't been done away with the law. And even when you compare them, it doesn't make sense. We're saved by a promise, not by law. And so what is the purpose of the law? I realize I only have a couple minutes left and I've only got through my first point. <laughs> but just relax. I'm not going to go too much over time. Don't worry. <laughs> Let me go through this quickly. Because this raises the question, why would God spend so much time on this Old Testament law if we are not saved by law or by works? Why, why do we have it? Well, Paul asked that question in verse 19. What is the purpose of the law? He says, the, why then was the law given at all? It was added, why? Because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. You know what that means? The law was added because it was meant to show our sin. Transgressions is a fancy word for sin. It means that you've crossed the line before God. The law was added to show and expose our sin and to show our need, our need for the seed. So what is the purpose of the law? To show our sinfulness and to show our need for a savior. The law cannot save us. It can show us what is required, but it cannot make us be righteous. It shows that we need a savior. Question number two kind of reiterates this in a slightly different way, where Paul says, I'm getting this right from scripture, is the law opposed to the promises of God? So in verses 21 and 22, he asked this question, and his answer is absolutely not. It was all part of God's plan, and I tried to show you that with how we're saved by grace through faith, and that leads to works in both the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. No, they're not opposed. 
But if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the law can't do that. It cannot give us life. It can tell us what life is, but it cannot give us life. Instead, in verse 22, it says, but scripture or the law has locked up everything under the control of sin. That means that the law is showing us, it's exposing our need for a savior. It's showing us that we are under sin. In fact, if you read Romans 7, and this would be some good homework for you, Romans 7, Paul talks about that the law just doesn't, just, just doesn't show our sin, but it intensifies our sin. When we hear a law, we want to double down and rebel against it and be self-centered. I mean, I see this in my kids. I tell my two-year-old daughter, don't do that. And she just looks at me like, you know, a two-year-old sweet little girl. Because <laughs> I'm bringing the law in her and that's intensifying sin in her own heart. Well, that's what the law did for us too because of our flesh and weakness and sin. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it locks up everything in sin so that we long for a savior, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law perfectly. And that when we trust in him, the righteousness of the law is then transferred to us by faith. And then verse 23 and 24 and 25, this gets to the last part of my outline. There's two images that Paul brings up in verse 23 and following. The first image in verse 23 is a jailer. Say that with me, a jailer. He says, before the coming of this faith, before Jesus came, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law held us in a form of bondage, Paul is saying. If we try to earn our salvation by law, it's a form of bondage. And then verses 24 and 25, the image changes slightly to a guardian. So from a jailer to a guardian, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. That's a slightly different image than a jailer. Back then, that was like a tutor. It was a slave that Roman families would hire to educate and discipline their children. It was a guardian that, that, that held those children when they were minors until they were old enough not to be under that. Well, Paul says the law is just like that. It's holding us kind of in a certain bondage and teaching us things, making us long ultimately for Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So what does all this mean? <laughs> What's the point of all this? Are you gonna go away with this thinking, okay, I can ace Pastor Rick's pop quizzes? Is that the point? <laughs> Let me show you why this is so practical. Number one, Here's why this is incredibly practical. If we really grasp what I'm saying today and how the law fits into God's plan of salvation, we will understand the Bible more, first of all, so that when you're reading Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're not groaning under blood and guts and sacrifices and civil laws and social laws and priestly laws and sacrificial laws, but no, you are seeing that this is ultimately pointing to your need for Jesus and a savior. Secondly, if you really grasp this, we will appreciate our salvation more. Because when you read the law, you should feel convicted and exposed. In fact, when Jesus came on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in their heart. Or you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. But if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. How many of you were murderers this week? You don't have to raise your hand, but, <laughs> but we're guilty. If we understand really what the law says, that it's not just external, but it's internal, goes to the heart, we will see and appreciate Jesus Christ, the seed that Abraham's promise goes to. 
And if we are in Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring too because of faith. And we will appreciate our Savior and salvation more. And finally, number three, we will be motivated to please God more if we really understand how this all fits together. We're not trying to earn our salvation by works, but by faith. And it's always been this way going back to Abraham, even under the Mosaic Covenant. It's always been by faith and through grace. I'm not going to read Genesis 18. I had that on screen, but I encourage you to read Genesis 18 because in this, God reconfirms the covenant to Abraham and then thereby to Jesus and us. And in that covenant, what God does to confirm that covenant, they take a bunch of animals, they cut them in half, they split them apart. And back in that day and age, when you had a covenant with another human being, sometimes you would split animals in half and both of you would walk through that to confirm the covenant. Do you know why you would do that? Because you were telling the other person that, may this be done to me. If I break this covenant, may I be cut in half, just like these animals. Pretty serious. Well, in Genesis 18, that happens. The animals are split in two. God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. But instead of Abraham walking through this covenant with God, do you know who the only character is that actually walks between the animals? It's God, not Abraham. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to make sure, Abraham, this covenant happens regardless of you. I am so committed to you that if I don't keep my end of the covenant, Abraham, may I die. And we know that, really, for God to keep his end of the covenant, he did die through the seed, Jesus Christ. Not because of anything he broke, but because we broke the covenant. We did not live up to our end of the agreement under Abraham and under the Mosaic law and covenant, but Jesus Christ did. And when we grasp that, we will be motivated to serve God more and more and more. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that this information would be helpful ultimately to people. I pray that they would think through how Old Testament believers were saved and how it fits in the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law and how it points ultimately to the new covenant, Jesus Christ who fulfilled it. And Lord, thank you for your law. I know it can seem oppressive, but your word said that it is good. Lord, the law in and of itself is not bad. It is a reflection of your character. It shows who you are. And thank you that there was a law fulfiller in Jesus Christ who died for us and fulfilled the law righteously and morally and even it sacrificial, sacrificially, Lord. Lord, help us to be motivated to live now, not by works, but by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. You are dismissed.